Good evening, and I'm Iron Will Becker, and I'm back with uh, part three of the 5,000-year leap book review. Um, so last time we stopped off, uh, we talked about principle number nine, and we're going to move on to principle 10 this evening. Um, principle 10 is the God-given right to govern is vested in the sovereign authority of the whole people. And this is a concept that... Um, was really espoused in the Declaration of Independence. And with, with those opening lines of um, we the people. So jumping right into here, John Locke is quoted on the second page of this principle. It says, whoever gets into the exercise of any part of the power by other ways than what the laws of the community have prescribed hath no right to be obeyed through the form of the commonwealth to be preserved since he is not the person the laws have appointed, and consequently not the person the people have consented to, nor can such an usurper or any deriving from or any deriving from him ever have a title till the people are both at liberty to consent and have actually consented to allow and conform confirm in him the power that hath that he hath until then usurped. So there's a whole purpose or a whole power in, according to um, the founders and John Locke and some of the early philosophers that wrote about this, that the power to represent the people is given by the, by the consent of the vote. And if it's not done according to um, that consent, if it's not upheld, then that person has no right to that seat in office. Um, Alexander Hamilton went on to say that the fabric of American empire ought to rest on the solid basis of the consent of the people. The streams of natural pow national power ought to flow immediately from the pure original fountain of all legitimate authority. And this all comes out of the... The idea and concept that we are that we are empowered by God to run our own lives, to be responsible for for who we are, for the choices that we make, and this really is going to be this short. James Madison goes on to say that these gentlemen must here be reminded of their error. They must be told that the ultimate authority, whenever Wherever the derivative may be found resides in the per people alone. And that is just that simple. Um, it, it was always meant and intended according to the Anglo-Saxon law that spawned into English law and that we carried that was carried forth to the Americas is that the people have the right to choose their rulers. And it should not be obstructed or um, uh, the word coming to my mind was absconded, uh, stolen, uh, any, any, anything, anything that takes it out of the people's choice um, is illegitimate. So principle number 11, the majority of the people may alter or abolish a government which has become tyrannical. We see that very clearly in the Declaration of Independence, how the founders felt. And many people were upset about 
with the British Parliament and um, King George in the way that things were being done because they weren't being given their voice, which was part of English law, is that the citizens should have their own voice. So right here, he opens up with Thomas Jefferson saying, prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. Essentially, that good people will suffer will suffer until it becomes no longer bearable. And then they will take action. And we can look at the founders. that They followed that model. They did that. Um, we can look at the different colonies and some of the events that happened there with some of the leaders. Okay. Now, this goes right into... Um, This was right into um, part of the declaration. It says, but when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evidences, and design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and provide new guards for their future security. And that's really what the founders um, felt that they were doing, is getting rid of what was hindering their lives and affecting their business practices, affecting the way they were running the colonies. Um, and a lot of the a lot of the founders and the people at the time felt, hey, we've been governing ourselves for you know 200 years for a long time um, in some cases because of when colony started and stuff. But there was that history of managing their own communities. He goes back to John. Um, Scavenger goes back to John Locke and he says, The reason why men enter into society is, is the preservation of their property. Therefore, whenever the legislators endeavor to take away and destroy the property of the people or to reduce them to slavery under arbitrary power, they, the officials of government, put themselves into a state of war with the people who are thereupon absol absolved from any further obedience. And are left to the common refuge which God hath provided for all men against force and violence. Whensoever, therefore, the legislature shall transgress this fundamental rule of society, and either of ambition, fear, folly, or corruption, endeavor to grasp themselves or put into the hands of any other an absolute power over the lives, liberties, and estates of the people, by the breach of trust, they, the government officials, forfeit the power the people had put into their hands. And it devolves to the people who have a right to resume their original liberty and provide for their own safety and security. So what John Locke is, is kind of saying here for us is that when our representatives are no longer representing us and they're creating a law that separates them from the rest of the American people that those representatives are wrong. They're out of line and it is not, um, it's not conducive, conductive to a free society um, when that starts to happen. And 
one of the things that that they really didn't like was all of that kind of thing which happened in Europe. Um, you know, the king gave special favors to um, certain nobles because whatever reason, um, they did a favor. There was just a lot of a lot of the the special deals is what I'm going for that were not acceptable to the founders. Um, and they really they really tried to make public service just that a service where a person would come in and they would give their time and sometimes to their own financial detriment, but they came in and they served. They brought in their good ideas. They brought in um, the values and they did their best for the country. And that's something that I struggle to see in today's day and age. All right, principle number 12. The United States of America shall be a republic. And you hear a lot of times, I should say, actually, probably since I was in high school at least, um, that America is a democracy. America is democracy. Well, it's not a democracy. It's a representative republic. And um, the the big difference is, is that democracy is everyone gets a say. And that's how laws are passed versus a republic where people are selected to represent the people and work for their benefit and for the benefit of the society at whole. Uh, he goes on to say that democracies, democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, and have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. A republic for which I mean a government in which the scheme of representation takes place, opens a different prospect and promises the, the cure for which we are seeking. And that's Madison writing, trying to explain what the difference is and, and why they felt so strongly about this, this um, representative republic because really, it's, it was designed for the best ideas to come forward. As we talked earlier, a virtuous people. Um, Skazen goes on to write, A republic which all of the founders had vigorously recommended over a pure democracy or any other form of government. They had the, the opportunity to see so much through history, to read and study. And to seek understanding from discussions, from reading material, um, all of that, that stuff, all of those writings from the philosophers of the Enlightenment forward um, really helped to feed uh, the way that they looked at things and processed things. You know, they had, they had the writings of Marcus Aurelius, a Stoic who had certain ideas that influenced them about things, about how they they should act or behave. Um, you know, Cincinnati is, the city of Cincinnati is named after a uh, Roman general, Cincinnatus, who when he was called to lead 
he went back to being a farmer again. Um, and that was something that the founders really admired in Cincinnati because they saw he could have taken power. And a lot of the founders saw George Washington in this light because he didn't want to be at center stage. But the events that happened and the founders saw him as the kind of person that would lead with integrity and therefore they valued having him uh, lead because they, they knew he would not go on to be a dictator, that he would give up power when the time was done. And he set a great precedent. All right. Principle 13, a constitution should be structured to permanently protect the people from the human frailties of their rulers. Um, so we open with Alexander Ham I should say he opens with Alexander Hamilton because that's his Skazin's quoting. For it is a truth with the experience of all ages has it, which the experience of all ages has attested that the people are commonly most in danger when the means of injuring their rights are in the possession of those toward whom they entertain the least suspicion. Um, straightforward in, in the way I look at things is those in le those that are elected to be representatives should be putting their best foot forward. Should be people that we can trust. Um, Thomas Jefferson gets quoted here. It says, "It would be a dangerous delusion were a confidence in the men of our choice." To silence our fears for the safety of our rights. That confidence is everywhere the parent of despotism. Free government is founded in jealousy and not in confidence. It is jealousy and not confidence which prescribes limited constitutions to bind down those who we are obliged to trust with power. But our constitution has accordingly fixed the limits to which and no further our confidence may go. The constitution was written to limit the power of federal government because the founders saw that the people are the ultimate rulers because they are the the smallest minority is the individual george washington goes on to say that government is not reason it is not eloquence it is force like fire it is a dangerous servant and a fearful master. And uh, you can look for cases on your own if you want to, to look at where things did not go very well. Um, from minor to other major things. Right. He goes on to say from Madison that if angels were to govern men, neither external or internal controls on government would be necessary. But lacking these, in framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed and in the next place oblige it to control itself. All right. Um, he goes on to say that the real genius of the Constitution, it was designed to control something which has not changed and will not change, namely human nature. And that was the intent to, to put limitations and restrictions on those who were serving as representatives to protect the people, 
protect our rights, rights that the Anglo-Saxons and the Hebrews saw as given by God to individuals before there was a government established in any form or shape. All right, principle 14, life and liberty are secured only as long, so long as the right of property is secure. And right in here, he jumps into John Locke. But because dominion means control and control requires exclusiveness, private rights and property become an inescapable necessity or an inherent aspect of subduing the earth and bringing it under dominion. So something that that I have been thinking about uh, probably for a couple years is about property rights. Uh, if you if you pay for land, why do you pay taxes on it if you're supposed to own it? Um, I, I understand those taxes go to, to pay for things. But for a long time, there were no property taxes long term. And those taxes have affected family farms and other family, other things the family worked hard for that then had to be sold to pay those taxes. All right. He goes on to note that without property rights, four things would occur. Note that if property rights did not exist, four things would occur which would completely frustrate the Creator's command to multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and bring it under dominion, which goes back to the Old Testament. One, number one, is one experience like the above would tend to completely destroy the incentive of an industrious person to develop and improve any more property. If you're going to lose the right to improve it, why would you work on it? A good example of that would be the um, the farms, the collectivism farms under uh, Soviet rule um, during the Cold War time period, in the World War II, in the the Cold World, Cold War, some of that stuff there. Number two, the industrious individual would also be deprived of the fruits of his labor. So, if you own the cow, you milk the cow, you sell the milk. You own that. That's yours. Um, you plant an orchard. Then you harvest the fruit from the orchard. That's your property. You own that. You know, those are the kind of things that, in, in this most simplistic way, but also intellectual property. Um, the idea with, uh, the original idea with patents was that there was a limited time where you could have a patent on things. And then they saw that if you release the patent, then other people could take that and make improvements upon that design. Personally, there's a whole other side thing. All right, number three, marauding bands would even be tempted to go about the country confiscating by force and violence the good things which others had frugally and painstakingly provided. We said in the case of armies all the time. Uh, throughout, the, throughout the Middle Ages, they would just take the provisions um the 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 food right off somebody's farm um as they were going about number 4 mankind would be impelled to remain on a bare substance level of hand to mouth survival because the accumulation of anything 
would invite attack. And you look at you look at something um, as recent as Indian tribes in the Americas before the settlers before the Americans moved out across the continent. They didn't. They didn't understand the concept of owning land. Things were not built. Um, very few tribes grew things. So, a person's property is a projection of life itself. Another interesting point made by Locke is the fact that all property is an extension of a person's life, energy, and ingenuity. Therefore, to destroy or confiscate, confiscate, excuse me, such property is in reality an attack on the essence of life itself. Right there, property theft. All right. Um, Skousen goes on to write that Locke states that through the though the earth and all inferior creatures be common as the gift from God to all men, yet every man has a property in his own person. This nobody has any right to but himself. The labor of his body and the work of his hands, we may say, are properly his. Whatsoever then he removes out of the state that nature hath provided and left it in, he hath mixed his labor with, and joined it to something that is his own, and thereby makes it his own property. And that's why um, property rights were so important to the founders, is because they saw that when you took excuse me, something from the natural state and improved upon it, that you invested then into that time, energy, um, whatever, whatever it may be that you were investing into that. Um, all right. So Locke answers the question, how is ownership acquired? And the laborer added something to them, the acorns or the apples, more than nature. The common mother of all had done, and so they became his prop, private property. And will any of one say he had no right to the acorns or apple or apples, and thus he he appropriated because he had not the consent of all mankind to make them his? If such a consent as that was necessary, the man would have starved, notwithstanding the plenty God the plenty God has given him. It is the taking any part of that is common and removing it out of the state nature leaves it in, which begins the property without which the common gift of God is of no use. So the the work, the energy that we put into something makes it ours. The land that we have here, that on this little this little plot of land that we live on, you know, we've we've put in a garden. Um, we're looking at, um, some bushes, some blueberry bushes. Uh, we're looking at, at possibly doing some fruit trees. Therefore, not only do, do I own the property, but I'm also investing in it and improving it, um, for future. All right. The. Justice George Sutherland of the U.S. Supreme Court once told the New York State Bar Association, it is not the right of property which is protected, but the right, uh, but the right, uh, hold on a second. 
It's not the right of property, which is protected, but the right to property. Property per se has no rights, but the individual, the man, has three great rights, equally sacred and arbitrarily inference, the right to his life, the right to liberty, and the right to his property. The three rights are so bound together as to be essentially one right. To give a man his life but deny him his liberty is to take from him all that makes his life worth living. To give him his liberty, but to take from him the property, which is the fruit and badge of his liberty, is to still leave him a slave. Abraham Lincoln goes on to say that property is the fruit of labor. Property is desirable. It is good. It is a positive good in the world. That some should be rich shows that others may become rich, and hence it just hence is just encouragement to industry and enterprise. Let not him who is houseless pull down the house of another, but let him work diligently to build one for himself, thus by example assuring that his own shall be safe from violence. I take it that it is the best for all to leave each man free to acquire property as fast as he can. Some will get wealthy. I don't believe in a law to prevent a man from getting rich. It would do more harm than good. And really the founders kind of expected some people to become wealthy to improve their property so much so that they became wealthy. And what they saw from the wealthy individuals is that they then supported different charities, they supported different communities, um, whether it was their church or some other some other thing. But they they put that property, that wealth, into just causes that they felt just and they wanted to support. And I'm sorry, Miani tonight, guys. All right. So John Adams saw private property as the most important single foundation stone undergirding human liberty and human happiness. He said the moment the idea is ad- admitted into society that property is not as sacred as the laws of God and that there is not a force of law and public justice to protect it, anarchy and tyranny commence. Property must be secured or liberty cannot exist. You've got to have the right. You've got to be able to own the fruits of your labor. You have to be able to own the fruits of your labor. And that is essentially what what this principle is all about. It's about complete ownership of your property. And for you to do with it as you will, again, the caveat being, as long as you're not harming others. All right. Um... In the early years of the American courts, the Supreme Court um, protected the citizens. But after 1936, the Supreme Court began to arbitrarily distort the meaning of the General Welfare Clause, which is um, in the Constitution and is also uh, kind of, I want to say, uh, re-emphasized in the the 10th um, article of the Bill of Rights. 
All right. So before 1936, the Supreme Court said that no man would become a member of a community in which he could not enjoy the fruits of his honest labor and industry. The preservation of property then is a primary object of the social compact. The legislature, therefore, had no authority to make an act divesting one citizen of his freehold, investing it in another, without a just compensation. It is inconsistent with the principles of reason, justice, and moral rectitude. It is incompatible with the comfort, peace, and happiness of mankind. It is contrary to the principles of social alliance in every free government. And lastly, it is contrary to the letter and spirit of the Constitution. They saw, I'll just put it this way. If the founders saw our current welfare system, they would be enraged because this flies in the face of what they believed and what they um, encouraged and what they practiced because they, they believed that men, and I don't mean Men in the nowadays, I mean, in their era, men meant mankind, all men and women, that they would help one another. And there was a genuine trust in, in the Americas up into the 1900s. Um, and there was a, a responsibility and a duty kind of built into the way we thought that if you were wealthy, then it was your obligation of your own free will and choice to give back to your community. Whether that was locally or on a national scale, that was completely up to the individual. All right. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna hit this one point. Um and this is uh this is written by uh, President Grover Cleveland when he vetoed legislation in his day designed to spend federal taxes for private welfare problems. Though the people support the government, the government should not support the people. And that's really the truth. The, 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 the U.S. government, any government, has no right to take tax money, a person's property, and use it to take care of other people. I know that's very controversial. There, there's people on both sides of this that have strong feelings. And I would say this. As I understand the way we did things in America up into the 50s, maybe it was later than that, um, that it was run in local communities and that there was always enough then in the local community to provide for families who fell on hard times and didn't have the financial ability to provide. But what that also did is that also then caused, let's say it was me, when I'd go to church, I knew that my friend Bill and I knew that my brother Rob, and I knew that my cousin Larry, that they were supporting me. And then I felt a personal obligation because I was getting support from my church 
my local community to find employment and provide for my family again. And we've kind of, we've really removed that in the way that things are done today. It's just, it's just not in accordance to the principles that the Constitution and the founders established this country on. All right, number 15. The highest level of prosperity occurs when there is a free market economy and a minimum of government regulations. Um, In 1776, there was a book called The Wealth of Nations that came out by a man named Adam Smith, who was a Scottish professor. And there was kind of... um, there's kind of four things that free markets kind of stand on, um, according to Adam Smith. The freedom to try, the freedom to buy, the freedom to sell, and the freedom to fail. Yeah, I know that last one isn't very popular. But it really is important that people win, lose, or fail based on their work. Um, I really cringe when I hear things like, oh, they're too big to fail. Guys, that's not how that works. That's not how it was ever supposed to work. And the, the whole intent of a true free market is to allow the people to to dictate and artificial price measures and things dude i know this is a ball of wax okay so but let me just go on here thomas jefferson if the american people ever allow the banks to control the issuance of their currency first by inflation and then by deflation the banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of all their property until their children will wake up homeless on the continent their fathers occupied the issuing power of money should be taken from the banks and restored to congress and the people to whom it belongs all right so we have a problem here in the united states around the world it's called fractional reserve banking and uh wiser man than me teaches that if you could just take monopoly money and turn it into real money that's what you get the founders learned that they could not run an economy on debt which is what we've been doing all right uh let me see who wrote this here uh All right, this is from an editorial uh, from the London Times. If that mischievous financial policy, which had its origin in the North American Republic during the late war of of that century, the Civil War, should become inundated down to a fixture, then that government will furnish its own money without cost. It will pay off its debts and be without debt. It will have all the money necessary to carry on its commerce. It will become prosperous beyond precedent in the history of the civilized governments of the world. The brains and the wealth 
of all countries will go to North America. That government must be destroyed or it will destroy every monarchy on the globe. Um, going on, uh, Jefferson says that we are we are overdone with banking institutions, which have banished the precious metals and substituted a more fluctuating and unsafe medium. These have withdrawn capital from useful improvements and employments to nourish idleness. These are evils more easily to be deplored than remedied. So we were warned. Um, the founders knew that you it's not wise to print money and just print more than you can back up with hard currency or um, specie or use a little more common gold or silver. All right. 16th principle. The government should be seated, separated into three branches, legislative, legislative, executive, and judicial. And this came out of concepts by uh, a guy named Polybius, who lived in 204 to 122 BC. And he recognized that power held by one organization was a problem. So, some of the political insights. Even more keenly than Aristotle, he... Polybius was aware that each form carried within itself the seed of its own degeneration. If it were allowed to operate without checks and balances provided by opposing principles, monarchy could easily become tyranny. Aristocracy, aristocracy sink into oligarchy, oppressive, oppressive government by a few rich families. Democracy turn into mob rule of force and violence. So, he had the idea to to separate powers and to put checks in place. Um, Montesquieu set forth um, the ingredients of a model constitution. Founders admired it sufficiently to use many portions of it as a guide in their own work. However, the founders' joint effort in constitution writing greatly excelled even that of Montesquieu. Nevertheless, to him must go the well-deserved credit for illuminating the minds of the founders with the exciting possibilities of a government based on separate but e- separate but contained powers. Yeah, so used to separate but equal powers. <sighs> Going forward, again, there is no liberty if the judicial if the judiciary power be not separated from the legislative and executive. Were it joined with the legislative, the life and liberty and the of the subject would be exposed to arbitrary control. The judge would be the legislator. Where it joined in the, to the executive power, the judge might behave with violence and oppression. So what that's kind of telling us is that the, the Supreme Court was not supposed to make law. They were supposed to thumbs up or thumbs down law but they're doing things today which I think the founders would be appalled by in in ending this in ending this 
principle. Uh, he quotes Ben Franklin, the Constitution of the United States with the separation of powers was, a, was as perfect as man could be expected to produce. He urged all the members of the Constitution to sign it, of the convention to sign it, so that it would have unanimous support. John Adams said it was his aspiration to see rising in America an empire of liberty. And the prospect of two or three hundred million of free men without one noble or king among them. So, we're going to stick a fork in there for tonight. But understand that the founders were laying out the best ideas that had been collected and thought about and worked on for thousands of years. At least about 2,000 years, give or take. And really, as a Christian, definitely see this as as divine providence, um, God's hand in in the creation of this country. I'm completely biased. It's part of my theology, and it's also I'm an American, so it's part of my belief in my country. Guys, thanks for joining me tonight. If you get if you enjoy this video, please like and share it. If you are looking for someone to help level up your leadership skills, that's what we do at Turning Leaf Solutions. And you can connect with me through turningleafs.com. There's a Calendly um, item there where you can click for a 30-minute uh, appointment to see if we'd be a good fit. I got to tell you that... Uh, that I'm a strong believer in the individual leading themselves. And that is that is kind of the core or a core of this great nation is that people would lead themselves and make wise choices that would benefit them and their families. My friends, Thank you so much for spending time with me. Hope you guys go out and make it a great week a weekend because it's that's it's only twenty six minutes or thirty six minutes till till Friday. So, all right, take care. Thanks again.